Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is brought to you by Node40, Crypto.com, and Gemini. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. I have Frank from the block here, which I'm super excited about. Frank, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on for this special holiday season edition of your show. I'm very excited to be here. It's, it's an uh, honor. Well, Privilege. I, I wouldn't call it an honor, but I, I appreciate you coming on. And, you know, this will probably come out in January. So people will be like, ah, oh, these idiots are talking about the holidays and it's the middle of January. But here we are. There's delays in production. So we just have to deal with it. That's the that's the reality of this pandemic world, right? You know, you got to keep things, keep things, try to keep things fresh, but it's always a uphill battle sometimes. Yeah, um, so is it like a, is it like a power trip? You know, I can, I can't see you, you know, nobody knows what you look like. Does that make you feel like more emboldened during your interviews that your guests have no idea what you actually look like? I, I don't no. think so. I, I don't think emboldened is the right word. I feel more like cowardly hiding behind anonymity, but you know, it, it is what it is. And um, I do, I do enjoy the fact that I get to see the big Frank mustache, which is back. We were talking about that before the show. So uh, how's, how's it going now? The mustache itself? Yes. I mean, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's sometimes unruly. Um, but you know, people wanted it back. I feel like, you know, there's this old school news element that it kind of, you know, brings out in me. And so I, I don't know, it's like part of the shtick, but also, um, you know, you, you got to stand out in this mm -hmm. industry, right? And, and things like mustaches and great content uh, help, help with that. <laughs> well, I don't have either of those, so I'll have to <laughs> try to figure yes, one but, out. <laughs> but Mark Gosselar has a beard now, so that's true. You can kind of ride his coattails in that respect. <laughs> That's true. So any tips for the for the youngsters trying to grow a mustache? I mean, Italian genes certainly help. Um, <laughs> outside of that, you know, <laughs> I, I, I've never really had a problem growing any type of uh, hair. <laughs> hair suit man. I, I don't it wasn't like I have any uh, tips of the trade. If you want your prodigy to have uh, an easier time, uh, find yourself uh, um, uh, an, an Italian with whom you can procreate. There you go. That's uh, that's that's some advice you can take to the bank right there, folks. <laughs> so, you know, I'm I'm happy to have you on. I haven't had anyone from the block on. Um, I you know I talk frequently with you and Larry and I guess Dudas, who's formerly Block Air, um, but. You know, he's I like thought, Professor Emeritus. <laughs> right, right. He's just hoping that his shares get cashed in someday, I suppose, is what, what Mike's hoping for. So you guys get to do all the work there and then maybe he'll <laughs> benefit financially. <laughs> um, what, we uh, set the foundation. 
Yeah, no, it's true. We, we all need founders. Um, so what, uh, what's, what's it like? What's it like over there at the block working with Larry and your other esteemed colleagues? It's been an interesting, almost two and a half year journey. Uh, when I look back and think of how far we've come, I know it's trite to say, but it really is bewildering. It, it's, it's something that I obviously appreciate immensely, but just cannot believe. I mean, we are at a point where even this year, 2020, in, in line with the broader market, are hitting traffic goals, having traffic days that are um, as high as an entire week's worth of content at the beginning of this year, let alone when I first joined in uh, September 2018. Um, we have articles that will go out today that have more traffic than the entire site um, <laughs> back in September, October, November, December 2018. So, I mean, just that, that, that growth story um, has been so amazing to watch. And then obviously the best part of my, of my job, aside from engaging with folks on Twitter and engaging with the interesting folks in the industry, um, are my colleagues. Um, and I don't say this with my tongue firmly placed on my cheek, um, although we try to be cheeky with each other, um, they're really great, amazing people, right? And, and we all sort of have this, this passion, this unbridled enthusiasm to uh, hold the space to account, um, to um, be in a way advocates of the space in as much as we hold it to account and try to bring to light the best players and the most passionate players and the most passionate skeptics. Um, and the, and it's every day is a, a new adventure. It's like working with your friends. We have passionate debates. We have, um, you know, we, we roast each other online, offline. So it's a, it's a unique experience. It's a great place to work as a 20 something. Um, we miss the offices, obviously I miss, um, you know, uh, having a few, uh, pitchers of beer with Ryan Todd after a long day. Um, and and, and we're, you know, we're trying to replicate that offline as, or, you know, virtually as much as we can, but it is a fun place to work. It's unlike, I think, any other place because of the tenacity and um, the degree to which we're all sort of on the same, same page here. Sure. What, uh, do you guys have a plan for going back uh, after sort of the COVID starts to wind down and the vaccine comes out? Yeah. So, I mean, we have our office space until I think the spring, you know, it was looking a little more bullish before this, I guess we're at the third wave now mm -hmm. um, in terms of returning to the office. So we did do that on a very select basis. I was going there, um, you know, to record shows and, and, you know, sometimes we'd have with social distancing, a few folks at the office, but, you know, just out of the abundance of caution for, you know, everyone on the team and then everyone, you know, just in our society, we, we decided to sort of roll that back. And, and now, um, you know, we've implemented a policy where um, we are completely um, decentralized, like Binance in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> and we, um, everyone can sort of work from, sorry about that. Um, everyone can work from wherever they want now. And that's sort of like a, a policy that, that will um, remain even after uh, the COVID 19 pandemic and its and its ripple effects um, die off um, 
excuse the <laughs> yeah i was gonna say ripple and die in one sentence yeah excuse me excuse the <laughs> turn of phrase um so like for, for instance you know i'm i'm in sunny sunny florida right now and i i don't have any plans for myself to to return to new york in earnest for for at least the next you know half year yeah well i don't blame you florida rules and new york's not great this time of year especially given the lockdowns oh and stuff. yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's just like not not worth it <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that you know the block is seeing massive increases on sort of their um, traffic and things. What do you think's driving that? Do you think the block has established itself as sort of one of the top tier crypto content news providers, or do you think it's more people are entering the space and are want to sort of consume these daily updates? Do you have a sense for what's driving that? I think that you have a number of, of new market entrants, right? So it's, it's not so much um, retail folks who are buying daily subscriptions, which is, well, now we call it our premium news product. Um, but, you know, professionals who are now um, having to work with more clients in the cryptocurrency market or um, new market entrants, people who are looking to invest in the cryptocurrency market who need um, a source of information that they can trust. Anecdotally, um, you know, just hearing from our membership and sales team, I mean, we in the past few weeks, and this shouldn't come as a surprise if you're looking at any of the headlines, mm -hmm. right? Going back to March, Paul Tudor Jones entering the space and more recently, Anthony Scaramucci announcing um, that he'd be launching, uh, he's going to launch a Bitcoin fund next year um, we are seeing these types of firms purchase uh, research subscriptions to the block. And so um, it is. It, it has been at a fast clip. So that's on the research um, product side, um, not necessarily on the traffic side. But we're also seeing that spill over into, into traffic. Um, what's, what's great is we know that there's so much more of an upside given the, the where we are in terms of exchange website traffic in terms of Google searches. So we haven't even hit that catalyst moment where folks are checking price every day, where it's hyper volatile and people are Googling Bitcoin every day, which will then lead um, even more traffic to the site. This, from my perspective at least, and I'm sure Larry will have his own opinion, is um, purely being driven by, you know, folks like yourself, you know, um, you know, someone at a top law firm who now has one crypto client just because they've, they've gotten bigger and now feel more comfortable taking them on or uh, folks at the big four accounting firms who are increasingly engaging with, with clients in the crypto space. You know, you got to think something like Goldman Sachs, right? Which is now, you know, their, their investment banking team uh, would have had no reason to know that much about crypto, but now they're advising Coinbase that's been reported and eToro, it's been reported. So I think that's why we're seeing more and more um, folks visit the site and more and more uh, folks uh, purchase subscriptions to the site. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, the institutional side, it's like, I think we, it's like the one thing we can all agree on in crypto right now is that retail still hasn't showed up and it's mainly uh, institutions driving this run. Um, I tweeted about this a few days ago about how if you look at the price chart over the last six months, it's sort of just this like methodical march up the chart and it doesn't look like retail activity where you where you saw in 2017 where you know like there's these huge spikes and drops and things now it's just like 
tick, tick, tick up the stairs. Um, and to me, that looks more like institutional adoption than retail. Um, so I guess it's interesting to think about how that manifests itself on the sort of journalism side and that it's more kind of research and there's a bunch of analysts at Goldman Sachs in a cave somewhere digging through block articles <laughs> on uh, Bitcoin and exchanges and things. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess I hadn't considered it, but it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I know on Twitter, it seems like sort of the core group of people are active, like the people we always see on Twitter, but I haven't noticed like a massive influx of new people. I, have you seen Social Blade before? It's like this sort of mm -hmm. analytics website where you can track your social media stuff. And that's where that's where I keep track of um, of Larry, um, me and Larry's following. I'm, I'm <laughs> closely, he's closely catching up. He's only nine hundred behind me now, so he's going to oh, usurp no. me soon. It's going to be a, a sad day at the block for me, just Ooh. me what's what's your twitter handle again so my followers can go fintech, right now fintech frank yeah everyone that's follow right. me so that larry doesn't beat me that's right we can't have larry winning anything no seriously it's already his his new found like appreciation amongst the crypto twitter universe is already yeah. getting to his head i do have to say i i know this doesn't help your narrative here but i <laughs> I, I i i think i tweeted a couple of weeks ago that larry is definitely the most improved twitter account of 2020 in my eyes yeah. like He's really done a good job of establishing himself as sort of like a snarky, bitchy, but like super interesting and informative follow. Like, yeah, he's he's doing a good job. Um, and I'm happy to he's he's no longer a no coiner, right? No, 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 no. So I he's mean, a degenerate he, like the rest of us. He doesn't want to stay poor forever. <laughs> yeah, Larry was having no fun staying poor. Of, of, of uh, poverty to, you know, have a bit of you know, grit. I think he's over that period of his life. Well, good. Well, I'm happy to hear that. But back to the social blade point, I, I remember looking at my sort of account and in January of 2018, I think I gained 20 or 30,000 followers in one month. It was like unbelievable. And yeah. then, you know, it sort of tapered off and I, I haven't seen anything like that on this run, um, which is fine. And I think I, I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think it shows sort of the maturation of the space in general. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what do you think about like the Bitcoin march here in 2020? Do you think, do you agree with me that it seems to be institutional driven or do you think like, do you think it's a bubble like it was in 2017? I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on sort of the price action side of it. Absolutely. Um, I think you're spot on. What's even more telling is if you look at price juxtaposed with volatility, and it's almost like um, inverted, right? You have the price soaring towards 28,000 while the 30-day rolling volatility has continued to decline. Um, and, and so a lot of people are describing this as a quiet rally, a sort of a sneaky rally, so to speak. And it's happening steadily, slowly but surely, without those, um, you know, those big, I mean, we've seen some drops, but not in the same way, right? The swings aren't that aggressive as they were in 2017. So that does speak to not only that institutions are buying, but just the maturation of the market structure. And so you have... Um, 
you have venues on which institutional traders can and institutional investors can make their bets in a way that lowers slippage, um, lowers exposure to the broader market. And so that that's why we see um, less volatility and and that's why we're seeing a more um, a rally that looks a little more like what you would see in traditional uh, financial services. Um, and that that speaks to not only who's buying, but the degree to which the space has uh, matured. And we're going to continue to see that um, going into uh, 2021. Absolutely. So uh, w- the, the big question, I think, that's sort of on everyone's mind right now is, does does that translate for a run on alts? Like, I guess you're sort of seeing Ethereum breakout right now. I think as of today, it's at like 7.30 or something. So you're definitely seeing kind of this same pattern play out from late 2017, late 2018, where you had Bitcoin spike really hard and then the money seemed to sort of flow over into Ethereum. And then from there, it kind of went into a lot of the smaller cap alts. I think, yeah, I I think... I think we'll see something like that play out in the first month of the year. Um, you know, everyone wants to come on Twitter and, and declare the, the death of alts. And I, right. I'm not going to do that on this show. But I think if you look at the trends that are playing out, right, January, you're going to have a lot of funds and financial services companies, investors restructure their portfolios and, and strategies to include um, cryptocurrency. And that's going to be Bitcoin mostly, right? Because it has the most um, mature market structure and the value proposition is more uh, clearly defined. And so that's going to continue this sort of, um, you know, move into Bitcoin. And you're also seeing that happen with Ethereum, right? And a lot of the traders I talked to say that over the past few weeks, few days, uh, you know, folks are moving out of alts into Ethereum and we'll likely see that continue to play out in the beginning of the year. But, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin continues to go up and um, ETH continues to go up, that you will have new retail folks come in and they're going to be the ones who look at that long, long tail of coins. And you're always going to have the crypto native investors that are more comfortable making bets in that um, corner of the space. So it won't write off alts completely, but um, you're definitely going to see um, a move into Bitcoin and Ethereum. And you're also going to see, I think, among some of the exchanges, at least in the US, a flight to quality where, you know, we've seen with Ripple um, the degree to which the SEC and regulators, um, you know, are keen on clamping down on, on tokens that might be uh, close to or, in fact, securities. And so maybe you'll see listing standards kind of be revisited. Maybe you'll see rating standards be revisited. And uh, that might, that might um, obviously have an impact on, on alts and, and be a potential tail, tailwind for uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the larger caps and even Litecoin, I guess, right? They're, 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 <laughs> I was I mean, going to ask you a light. To benefit um, that for no apparent reason, um, whenever, you know, uh, Bitcoin does well, it's little. I'm, I'm still not sure what Litecoin even does. <laughs> I've been around a long time and I'm like, what is it you say you do here, Litecoin? I feel bad. I feel bad because I do, I tease them and like, I know that there are people that are working on it and, mm-hmm. you know, and apparently they have the most developers. Someone tweeted that at me. I'm like, I don't yeah. think that that's true, but 
it's like, you know, you don't want to yuck other people's yums, mm-hmm. but um, I just don't get it. It's like, it's like, I get it. You know, you know, RC Cola is cheaper than Coke. So, you know, you might want to buy it, but, um, but just why though? It doesn't. Yeah. Have a reason. Anyway, I, I, I maybe about- someone will convince me. I've been, I've been, I've, my DMs are open. Um, if you want to make me a Litecoin evangelist? Um, yes. Yeah, I'm here for the taking. Go, go save Frank. <laughs> I, <laughs> Baptize me with the Holy Spirit and Litecoin. You know, it's interesting too. Like with the SEC action against Ripple, I've been thinking a lot about how like maybe the layer one wars are starting to come to an end. Like mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard to look at Ethereum and Bitcoin who have ultimately been blessed now by the SEC saying they are no longer a security and then come out and be like, well, I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'm going to compete with Ethereum or I'm going to compete with Bitcoin. It just like, it seems like, and maybe this is, maybe I'll eat these words in a year, but it just seems like we're at the point where it's hard to believe that, you know, you're going to catch them. And particularly with this regulatory moat now that they have, without being a security, you know, it seems extra hard, but time will tell on that. I am also curious on your thoughts, sort of, you've been kind of really deep down on all of these new hedge fund managers getting into Bitcoin microsystems and sort of the institutional adoption of Bitcoin. Do you think that this is coming to Ethereum? And if you do kind of, do you have someone or some company in mind that might take up the ethereum helm yeah it's a good question it's something that i was actually thinking about including in my 2021 uh predictions i don't think this is a controversial point and it's not necessarily um that um yeah it's a bit it's it's a bit generic but what we're going to have in 2021 is the development of uh, Ethereum futures at a CME. We're going to see the market structure for Ethereum develop in a similar fashion to Bitcoin. You have that regulatory clarity, which is the biggest thing that institutional investors need. In addition to kind of wrapping their mind around the unique tech um, parameters of Ethereum. And so you have CME, you're likely going to have Fidelity Digital Assets for a lot of support for um Ethereum, they're working with some of the largest hedge funds. I actually have a deck from one hedge fund that is announcing a large fund next month. They're partnering with Fidelity. So right now, Fidelity just does Bitcoin. Once they do Ether, it kind of has that that ripple effect um, where, you know, once the service providers offer the tools in which investors can then make a bet on the space, then those investors will, will then be able to consider. But you have to think about it right now, right? You know, if I'm uh, you know, Bully Esquire um, Capital LLC. Um, I'm not going to then. I'm. I, I'm already. I already have the, the the burden of deciding whether or not an asset is going to go up or down, and and then allocating based off that that thought process. I'm not going to. I'm not going to have. I, I don't want to worry about the sort of custody and the trade execution and all of those aspects or the hedging the lack of proper de- derivatives to hedge. So that's why, you know, you haven't seen necessarily that same level of institutional engagement with Ethereum. But when you do have those tools, um, you likely will, and it will sort of follow the, the, the course of, of Bitcoin. 
because mm-hmm. I think there is a a different type of value proposition. Mike Novogratz likes to call it um, uh, digital oil um, mm-hmm. or fuel, ethos fuel. <laughs> um, so I think it's more of a matter of um, when than, than if, and it's when, uh, you know, we see futures when firms like Fidelity support it because on the most part, for the most part, rather, the big names have, have kind of shied away from it. You know, Fidelity isn't offering ETH custody, BACT isn't offering ETH custody. And so uh, that will happen. And then when that happens, you'll sort of see, um, or you'll likely see some floodgate open where then investors, asset managers, asset allocators will, will then roll on in. This year, the IRS will require you to report your crypto activity when filing your tax returns. Crypto savvy taxpayers are using Node 40 to determine the taxes they owe or losses to claim. Whether you've traded the top five tokens or dove into the new and exciting world of DeFi, Node 40 will provide a bulletproof picture of your current tax liability. Exchanges alone can't provide the reports you need. That's why you need a group of crypto tax geeks like the team at Node 40 in your corner. With Node 40, you won't have to worry about surprises come tax time. Be smart, be prepared, and embrace your crypto lifestyle. My listeners can even take advantage of a bully promo code by signing up today at node40.com slash bully. That's N-O-D-E 40.com slash B-U-L-L-Y. The crypto.com Visa card pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. It also gives you a 100% rebate for Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime. What's more, you can enjoy unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates. Plus, there are no annual, monthly, or ATM withdrawal fees to worry about. Get $25 worth of CRO when you download the Crypto.com app with the code BULLY and stake 5,000 CRO or more to reserve a metal card. Reserve yours today at the Crypto.com app. Join Gemini, the number one cryptocurrency exchange in the world. Gemini is the go-to platform for beginners and sophisticated investors alike looking to build their crypto empire. It's available in more than 50 countries with industry-leading security, insurance, and uptime. You'll get access to the best-performing assets of the decade, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. Schedule your reoccurring buys on the Gemini mobile app to steadily build your position and go long and strong on crypto. Open a free account today in under three minutes at Gemini.com bully. If you do, you get 10 bucks in Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within 30 days. Once again, that's Gemini.com slash bully. I suppose, you know, there's, I'm not an institutional guy, but I'd assume that if they're watching ETH closely over the last couple of months, they've been following, you know, the scaling, the ETH point 2.0, the beacon chain launch and things like that with great interest, because if those would have gone egg shaped or, you know, mm-hmm. the Genesis chain would have accidentally burned 200,000 ETH or, you know, if something would have happened bad with that, that undermined people's confidence in the network, I think that could have had detrimental effects on the price and the usage and things. So it may just be like institutions are waiting for the waters to settle a little bit until ETH is really like everyone's comfortable with ETH 2.0 fully integrated. And I know I had on Trustless State, uh, David Hoffman on my show a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about sort of the transition and there's all of these different phases with ETH 2.0. 
and you know they're expanding scaling but there's also like so it's basically like a two-year-long process as i understand it so it, it could make sense that they're waiting to make sure that all of that works smoothly before really diving in I also think, and I'm sure there will be um, Ethereum advocates out there who will disagree or find fault in what I'm about to say, but I also think there's a more clear narrative, at least in the institutional space, about what Bitcoin is. And I just actually pulled up a deck from a fund that is looking to um, launch a Bitcoin fund next year, and this is a large um, hedge fund. Um, and it's the same talking points, right? These have been reverberated across the institutional landscape. Emerging asset class, you have in the backdrop near zero interest rates, unprecedented money printing. This word has been omnipresent or this phrase has been omnipresent and questions around the, the traditional 60-40 portfolio. And here enters Bitcoin, this alternative to gold. The, the narrative has taken form, it's taken shape, and with this macro backdrop, and I'm not saying it's right, let me be clear, like, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying that these folks making this bet or subscribing to this narrative are going to be right, I'm just saying that it's there, and it's there at Paul Tudor Jones, it's there at a number of other funds across the space, we reported on Millennium, getting close to investing their $40 billion fund, Skybridge, uh, I think they're about a $5 billion fund. And then even Ray Dalio, um, we haven't reported this yet. I don't even know if it's a big story yet, but their research team is moving closer to at least putting out some notes for their clients on, on Bitcoin. And they're the largest hedge fund. Mm -hmm. And it's all around this, this same narrative, right? That you know money is evolving. Um, Bitcoin is a scarce digital asset. It's better than gold. Um, and and these, these things have been talked about ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. for xyz reason and so that's that's a feather in bitcoin's hat um that maybe ethereum does have but definitely not to the same degree um and i think if if a narrative like that emerges alongside with the market maturation um that's a that's a good recipe um yeah. for for a bullish outlook yeah no it's a good point and it's a good thing for eth heads to consider it's like, well, just look at what Bitcoin did. Look at how the maxis were able to sort of shift the narrative from uh, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer payment system, to Bitcoin, a store of value, digital gold. And that transition has been incredibly effective at swaying sort of institutional adoption. Um, and that narrative, I mean, you and I have both been around several years, and I, I, I feel like that narrative has only solidified in the last year or two i mean it's it's always been there but i remember when we first started it was like yeah. oh we want to get payment adoption and lightning networks off it doing payment, its own thing it was payment adoption but it was also it was also this thing doesn't work as a currency yeah and every person in 2017 excuse me every reporter who interviewed a big financial hotshot asked what do you think of bitcoin and from Larry Fink to Ray Dalio, the answer was, well, it's not good as a currency. These aren't real currencies because of X, Y, Z. Um, and, and, and gold kind of was, was mentioned, but it wasn't, to your point, um, as you know, at the forefront as it is now. And I'm looking at this deck, right? And the whole thing is Bitcoin versus gold. Bitcoin is gold 2.0. Bitcoin is better at being gold than gold is at being gold. This is a, that's a direct quote. 
Um, and then I, I have here the, the sort of breakdown of, of where Bitcoin is superior to gold in, in various uh, aspects, uh, scarcity, transferability, storage, durability, fungibility. These are all things we know about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't remember this being there in 2017 to the same extent. So no. I think you're right. I think there, there is a difference here from payments and it's a bad currency to it's, it's gold. And, and that gold narrative is, is resonating. And we have to, um, or at least folks benefiting from this, have to uh, give a, a thanks to uh, one, one Barry Silbert who kind of <laughs> helped sure. pioneer this messaging. <laughs> no, it's true. And I mean, I, I talked about this on my recent podcast with uh, Nathan about how, you know, you see a lot of infighting between maximalists on the Bitcoin side and ETH ads on Ethereum. And uh, my point was, well, they're, they're now becoming completely different asset classes. I think I made the comparison. It's like saying gold is better than Tesla stock or something like it just, it doesn't really make sense to compare the two. I mean, they're both cryptographically secured digital currencies, but that's really where the narrative stops being the same. And Ethereum, you know, it's like the backbone now for this new uh, digital finance, distributed finance system, DeFi, and, and yeah, Bitcoin's off doing the gold thing. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, it will be interesting to see over the next two, three years how Ethereum sort of solidifies its narrative because I don't really have a clear way of describing it in my head. Like you said, it, the Bitcoin yeah. folks it, have been so yeah. studious about yeah. pushing this narrative. So it'll be interesting and to see what F does. With and it. I want to be super clear before someone like my former colleague, um, Teo Leibowitz comes um, jumping down my throat. I'm not saying that there isn't a narrative around ETH. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that it's not appearing in the, the pitch decks, investor mm-hmm. decks of $5 billion hedge funds. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, take that with whatever sort of understanding you want. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I'm as bullish on ETH as they come. I just don't have those talking points burned into my brain the way I do <laughs> with Bitcoin. And yeah. I suppose that just comes with time. Absolutely. So, um, you know, you've, you've probably put out a lot of stories in 2020. I, oh, I, yeah. I, I get to put, I get to sort of fall back on it's the end of the year. <laughs> so I'm just curious, like what, what was your sort of favorite story of the year? What do you think was the biggest story of the year you covered? Or I, 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 I mean, I'll leave it to you on how to answer that, but I do think it's, it's interesting from your point of view as somebody in the trenches as a journalist breaking stories in the crypto space, like what do you think was the most important story of the year? That's a really great question. Um, it's one that I should have anticipated ahead <laughs> of this conversation to answer. I think we saw a number of trends play out post, um, post-crisis, I mm-hmm. guess we can call it, um, was a really interesting time for the block crypto.com. We got to sort of step outside of our comfort zone because no one was paying attention to crypto in the way that they were beginning of the year. And um, I will will share some specific articles. I will get to your specific question, but I think this is an interesting point. So we had to step outside of our comfort zone and, you know, we put out a story about, you know, some of the biggest firms in the space, whether it's Coinbase or whatever, and no one was really reading it because nobody 
you know, cared, right? Markets were falling apart. So we kind of had to think of creative ways to tell stories that kind of brought together traditional markets and, and, and the cryptocurrency world. So I, I like to think that I played a strong part in that, right? You know, linking gold with Bitcoin and linking tips and inflation hedge assets with Bitcoin, um, linking what's going on in broader capital markets, IPO SPACs with the crypto market, and telling these stories that kind of are at the intersection of these two, of these two industries as a way to sort of cash in on the interesting, sad in many respects, obviously, but interesting time for um, markets. And coming out of that, I think we're really well positioned as a, as a information services company to provide not only to crypto native folks, but folks in fintech, macro and beyond with content that is differentiated because it is, it's crypto blockchain DLT first, but then expands out and touches all these other verticals from fintech, brokerages, exchanges, um, payments, and, and, and beyond, right? And so that is the, the big story for us and for my coverage out of 2020 that I think is most interesting. Hitting things like the Paul Tudor Jones note in May speaks to that sort of intersection you know, Robinhood getting hit by uh, the SEC for payment for order flow violations is another example, not necessarily crypto stories, but the stories that are kind of at the intersection. If I think of like, here's a really good example um, from April 1st, turmoil in the fixed income market. So nothing to do with crypto, pushed a hot blockchain lender to hit the brakes on its on its signature product. So you had Figure, um, a large, I think they're a unicorn at this point, no longer issuing HELOC loans because of what was happening with pricing, mis, um, pricing issues in the fixed income market. And so classic, classic example there. Another trend that we saw where we put out a lot of stories and, and, and broke a lot of stories was in crypto M&A. So we broke you know, Binance inking its coin market cap acquisition deal during a broader M&A freeze in the traditional markets. Um, Silvergate experiencing issues with outbound, outbound, excuse me, outbound wire transfers um, in the midst of, of the March um, mania, adaptive capital shutting down. Um, so all these really cool stories with this really cool backdrop of, of, the, of the crisis. Sure. Yeah, the M&A topic's really interesting. And, you know, I do some corporate M&A work myself. So it's kind of a topic close to my heart. But, I, you know, it, you're right that there have been some massive deals in crypto this year from um, the, what was it, Blockfolio and FTX. That was 250 million or something. And there've been all of these kind of major deals. And uh, and along those lines, I know it's not M&A, but seeing like PayPal get in to the crypto game, I think has been a huge story. Um, and one that I think is driving <clears throat> a lot of the uh, sort of price action on the Bitcoin side, because, you know, you have Paxos, who's there, who's doing custody for PayPal, and they have to hold Bitcoin one to one per the New York Department of Financial Services regs. When, so if you buy a Bitcoin on PayPal, 
Paxos has to actually hold one Bitcoin in custody. Yeah. Um, so I think like there's some scarcity supply side issues, which may be driving some of the price action on, on the Bitcoin side too. So yeah, that's, that's interesting on the financial markets bleed over too. Um, and how the spaces are becoming more connected now with Wall Street to fintech to crypto and, you know, crypto sort of growing to become this new asset industry and asset class and industry. And I guess now we're starting to bump up against other industries and how, how that dynamic plays out. Yeah, we absolutely are. Um, and, you know, it's funny, we kind of, in preparation for this coming M&A wave, I recently kind of sat down and just thought, okay, what questions should we be asking or, or answering rather for our readers when we have these types of deals, whether it's Coinbase um, acquiring Tagomi or, you know, we're going to probably see Coinbase snap up a few companies post IPO, but what are the questions we should be asking? And so we're definitely getting ready for that. I know of at least three deals that are soon to be announced that I'm working on uh, breaking hmm. within the first week of January. Um, so it is going to be intense. It is yeah. going to be a very intense uh, first month of the year from, uh, I, I can't promise that that's going to translate to price. Nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen there, but you are going to see a number of deals uh, happen. Yeah. I, I, I mean, as someone in the M&A world, I will say that this week we're closing a ton of deals because everyone's worried about the tax status of next year. Like if Georgia, if George, if, if a Dem wins in Georgia, there's a good chance that the tax laws on the corporate level change next year. So the thought is everyone's trying to get their deals in at the wire here two mm. days before the new year. So they could potentially claim 2020 tax treatment on those cap gains and the sale of their business and things. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if next week you see a shitload of press press releases saying, oh, this this deal happened, that deal happened, because they're probably, I bet the lawyers are inking the, the purchase agreements right now. And a lot of those will close in the next couple of days. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and your question about what, what are readers interested on the M&A side. It's like when you read an obituary, you always want to know how they died. I always want to know how much the company sold for. So I, yeah. I, hate, I hate reading M&A articles where they're like, oh, we didn't, we weren't able to learn the price for the deal. Yeah. Well, we try to squeeze it out of them. There's a number of questions that they just won't sure. answer. Um, but we're thinking of things like, you know, who are the legal advisors? Who mm -hmm. were the Banking advisors, tr transaction value, to your point, um, mm -hmm. consideration mix of the deal, equity, cash, tokens, sure. et cetera. So we kind of have it laid out and we're, we're ready. And hopefully um, even the most pedantic, wonky M&A readers like yourself will find <laughs> value in some of these stories. No, it's true. And uh, yeah, as somebody who practices, it's good to know who the other law firms, yeah, who the investment bankers are working the deals and stuff. That's good information as well. How about, um, how about sort of on the, on the people side, who do you find like some of the more kind of critical figures in the space? I know we have a bunch of kind of colorful characters in crypto, but do you have a few that you're like, oh, these these were some of the biggest names in the space this year, and they they added 
you know, they were just sort of like, you know, how time is person of the year. They can be infamous or famous. It's just somebody who had a big impact. Do you, do you feel like there's a few folks in particular you'd think of? Every year we kind of want to um, put out a list, um, but they're, they're a lot of hard work. It's hard to make them somewhat scientific, but, you know, because we, we have kicked the tires on this, it is something I've thought about. I, I like to think that some of the more interesting people are operating in the background um, and, having, and having a big impact. And, and some of those folks are um, people like um, Vishal Gupta, who is the head of exchange at Coinbase. He has a, a small Twitter presence, but he's working on some stuff that's really interesting there. Um, more, more known folks that I think have um, been a big presence this year, obviously, Sam Bankman Fried at, at FTX is yeah. an incredibly fascinating figure. Um, and I, I say this without much flattery, um, or I hope he doesn't think that I'm flattering him, but I mean, from just building this venue to then, you know, Forbes 30 under 30 to donating the most of any executive to the presidential campaign of Joe Biden. I mean, that is a very interesting story. I think that Brian Armstrong on the flip side uh, was very interesting this year, uh, kind of coming out, um, you know, being someone who's going to helm the, the largest, most notable crypto fintech company post IPO next year, and then kind of getting in the middle of this culture war over, you know, what is, what is acceptable or not acceptable within the office that made huge waves and was one of the most, in my opinion, um, impactful stories or, or string of stories within the space to kind of bleed into uh, the traditional press. And so that was um, significant. That kind of um, made him um, very notable this year. Not that he's um, not that he's necessarily been unnotable in other years, but it's certainly been interesting. So those are a few that come to mind. Yeah. Um, and then there are just tons of operators in the background that I think are, are really interesting. Yeah. I'd, I'd put Sam up there as well. I, he's one of the folks I want to get on the podcast to talk about it because I'm sort of curious to hear <laughs> his point of view on a I lot of the will. products. I mean, the guy, I mean, the guy I don't think ever sleeps. Yeah. That's what I've heard. He's a workhorse. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I think another one on my list would be Brian Brooks, um, who's sure. a former chief legal officer of Coinbase, now at the head of the OCC. Um, that's been really interesting to watch. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll see how all that plays out, but it's certainly bullish on sort of the federal banking side. And then, you know, Caitlin Long, I think, is another one that's always making waves, the federal or the state banking charter in Wyoming. I guess I'm more of a nerdy wonk looking at the regulatory side of things, mm -hmm. and you're the cool business guy looking at all the... <laughs> <laughs> interesting business stuff, but they both have their worlds, I suppose. Definitely. Um, and then, yeah, so I, I, I suppose the last thing I was curious about is you mentioned that you've made some predictions for 2021 and they'll probably be out by the time this comes out, but I'm, oh, I'm curious to hear what sort of what you're thinking for the next, um, you know, year. Well, I kind of hit on some of them and hopefully that I won't be proven wrong by the time this comes out, but 
there are a few things that I think are fascinating that I'm looking at. Um, kind of hinted at some of them. I, I, I talked about the listings, um, flight to um, flight to quality um, that we might see as a as a ripple effect of the XRP stuff. I also think we're going to see market structure continue to change. We're going to see for the first time. Um, retail fees, which have been stubbornly high, um, and your retail audience uh, will will maybe um, be aware of this, um, those are going to finally come down, I think, by at least the second half of the year. I think that's going to be driven in part by um, the introduction of payment for order flow in the crypto market. So what we see with brokerages like Robinhood, um, where high-frequency trading firms match or execute orders on behalf of these brokers, that will find its way to crypto, which will then bring down uh, those upfront fees that folks have to pay um, when they make a trade. And I also think we're just going to see broadly exchanges um, experiment, and this is somewhat wonky, um, with new like fee schedules and, and um, fee tiers, and kind of step outside the, the classic maker taker, maybe look at things like inverted taker um, and just continue to innovate on what we see in traditional markets and in crypto already. So that's going to change and probably lead to hopefully, or the idea is better products, better and more efficient markets overall. Um, so it sounds boring, but it is something that um, will have a big impact. I think we talked about M&A, right? I think that's going to continue to heat up, driven by Coinbase and other large exchanges. Coinbase in particular is uniquely positioned because of the IPO, and they'll have a what, what you know, I used to cover the IPO market when I was at Business Insider. And um, John Tuttle, who actually just had a really nice um, uh, profile in the Wall Street Journal, um, He's the, he was the head of global listings back when I used to speak with him more regularly. He used to talk about um, post-IPO, you have your shares, which can then act as a currency mm-hmm. uh, for, for M&A. And, and this is something you, you definitely know a lot about. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if we see Coinbase snap up quite a few companies. And I will say uh, they will, we will see at least one in January. And if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll eat crow, but I'm fairly certain. Um, and that will be pre-IPO, but that will just be the, the beginning, I think. Um, and, you know, who knows what other firms, you know, fresh on the heels of big fundraisers, you could see Paxos snap up something. Bitso just raised $60 million. I wouldn't be surprised if they snapped up something. So we might see some notable transactions from those firms in the, in the, in the first uh, quarter of the year. Mm-hmm. So those are some of my predictions. Not, I don't think they're controversial. Um, but um, that's what I sort of uh, crapped out last night when I was uh, <laughs> thinking about this. Yeah, I was but- like, I need your predictions on my desk by 6 a.m. And I said, all right, let me uh, see what I can think of. <laughs> Jeez, Larry, chill, man, chill. Yeah. There's no, <laughs> yeah. no, there's no, there's no chill. With, with this <laughs> no, I think I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't know really about the retail fee side of things. I mean, I suspect you're probably right. It seems like exchanges are dying for business and there's a lot of them that are pretty good now and that they're going to be looking for sort of differentiation in the market and products to kind of give them an edge and get volume and liquidity which really drives traffic 
on the exchange side. So yeah, I, I probably agree with you there. And I definitely agree with you on the M&A side. I mean, money's cheap. There's so much VC money out there, which drives M&A um, and crypto's hot as hot as hell right now. So it, it would, I'd be surprised that there wasn't a ton of M&A next or at least in the first quarter of 2021, unless like the wheels fall off the economy or something. Yeah. But I don't foresee that Barring happening. Barring that, we're right. an apocalyptic <laughs> situation. Um, I just hope I don't have to go back to New York. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm right there with you. Um, so I, I guess the, the last question I had was, have there been anyone getting higher scores on your intern quiz than me. And I think the answer is no there. <laughs> I haven't checked it a lot. You know, you did really well on it. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I think we all were. Mm -hmm. I've been, I've been working hard to, to get my 10,000 hours, Frank. That was, that was great. You know, we, we need, we need new interns. This is a call to action. Right. You know, if your corporate M&A lawyering doesn't work out, there's um, <laughs> always a seat for you at the table. I can be an intern at the block. Good to know. Yeah. Um, we well, pay, I, I think we, well, I'd get in trouble if I said that. <laughs> I think we pay them too much. You have, you have everybody, everybody would say that I get paid too much. Steven likes to joke that on a Frank salary adjusted basis, we'd already be a profitable company. <laughs> you should just say your compensation structure is very uh, attractive. <laughs> I like to think so. It's the mustache, I'm sure. That that, yeah. that, that has its own contract. That's it. Right. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate you stopping by and having a 2020 rundown on Bully Esquire's podcast. So oh, I appreciate my pleasure. That. Can't wait for this to come out. Um, enjoy the new year and we'll talk soon. Yeah. So for those of you who don't follow him, go follow him. He's at, fin at Fintech Frank, right? That's right. And, uh, and we also have our own podcast. We'll have Bully on next year. Um, that's the Scoop mm -hmm. podcast and theblockcrypto.com. Yep, yep. Go check come, out the block. And, out. and uh, yeah, read, subscribe, sign up. It's great. Um, you got, I, I, parting words, I will say that I have been incredibly impressed with the scoops coming out of the block this year and that you guys will like outscoop Bloomberg and, um, CNBC frequently. So bravo, you guys are doing a hell of a Thank job you. over there. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I All put right. my pants on two legs at a time. Like <laughs> well, keep doing it. It's working. Take, take it easy. Thanks so much. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.